great joy to come and share with you. I'm, I'm Mervyn and my wife Claire. We, as I say, they've already said, we uh, head up the uh, Streams of Hope ministry in the church. Um, at speaking, uh, this is the fourth one on the... Have you got the... Put the oh yeah. And uh, the fourth one on the, the talks on uh, the Psalms. And the interesting thing is about this wasn't the talk on the Psalms, but it's the fact that Claire and I are doing it together. I don't know whether it's husband or wife. <laughs> when you come to speak, uh, both of us could probably fill the half hour <laughs> together. So you've got two sermons for the price of one, but it, so that's been quite interesting. It has. <laughs> we also run Love After Marriage, so we've no excuse. We know how to pray. We haven't. But just um, a quick resume of where we've got to. Um, the, about the Psalms, this is just a, for those who haven't been here, a, a quick resume of it. Um, the Psalms can be poetry. They're, it's an interesting thing. People use the Psalms, read the Psalms for all sorts of things in their Christian life. And uh, some of it is uh, it's poetry, and of course it, it addresses your thinking through your heart. So a lot of it is about heart. It's about, a lot of them are music, some of them are often use a lot of metaphor, which Claire will be speaking about. The Psalms can be literature. They have different types of literature. We, we've, had, uh, we've got the, the, the five that we're doing are lament, celebration, thanksgiving, trust and praise, and we're doing the trust one now. They, can, they should be treated as a whole. There's no formal structure. Uh, they, they tend to, um, they've been written in different settings, so they're not all the same. They're just a, a collection of thoughts. Some of them have been written by David, some by Solomon, uh, and other people have got other names on it all. And um, obviously, psalms are also songs because people can use them to connect to God and worship. Um, now, we, we heard Nigel spoke on psalms of lament, uh, which is where we sort of rant to God about our problems. <laughs> and uh, the Psalms are meant to be quite interesting because you're blaming God for this, that and the other. You're talking to him about what you're feeling. It's the deep feelings within. But at the end of the day, every Psalm of lament has a statement, a declaration, actually I'm going to trust in God. Even though all this stuff's gone on, I'm going to trust in God. And then we had psalms of celebration, royal psalms, which Neil did to us. And this is all about our covenant relationship with God. Again, they all have an emphasis of trusting in God at the end of the day. And then we had the psalms of thanksgiving last, uh, last time. And again, you find in every single one of them, there's an emphasis that we're going to trust in God. Now today we're going to be looking at that actual trust in God, um, even in times of despair and disappointment. But because a lot of people find it uh, quite interesting that they trust God for something, and what happens if it doesn't work out? What happens if what you're believing for? I mean, I've, there are people in the congregation that I know who've even heard God speak to them about something, and then when it's come to it, it's not happened. And we're going to be looking at all of that uh, today and, and uh, this morning. So um, the Psalms of Trust are, are basically, there are 10 in all. Claire's going to be looking at Psalm 91 with you in a minute. Uh, but they center on the fact that God can be trusted even at difficult circumstances. And we've got to resolve the issue. 
of when the difficult circumstances happen, am I going to give up on God? Because some people do. Psalms, uh, you know, they help us express our trust in God. And, uh, and often a lot of these psalms use metaphors, pictures, emotions, and poetry to try and express this. So that's a bit of background on what we, we understand by the psalms, because uh, and, uh, many of us use the psalms in different situations. So Claire's now going to share with you. Yeah, the, these are just... Um, yeah. Uh, pictures of uh, trust, you know, and uh, when we trust somebody or something, risk is involved... So I'm just going to start with what is trust? What is it? It's, uh, and I looked it up in the Oxford Dictionary, which says that it's a firm belief in the honesty, veracity, which means truthfulness, justice, strength of a person or a thing. We often think of trust of trusting people. But actually, we trust all sorts of things in life to work and to do. We trust institutions, although you can say they're made up of people. Um, but we, we are trusting every day of our lives. You're even trusting that the chair you're sat on now is going to hold you. <laughs> and I'm trusting that the microphone is going to work for me, all these little things. Um, but So trust invades every area of our lives. So it's really, really important. And trust is based on feeling safe and secure, even in the face of real or perceived perils. Okay, things that are actually real or things that you imagine may not be. It can, uh, it, it's about how safe and secure we feel in them. And it's a confident expectation, reliability, protection, depending on, relying on, having faith in that person, people, or those things and situations. So what do we look to in our lives to give us a sense of security and safety and, and to give us that sense of I can trust here? Um, well, very common uh, things that we look to, it, this isn't an exhaustive list, it's just very common things, are like key relationships, like when you're a child, that could be parents. Um, it could be, as you grow up, friends, peers. Um, it could be uh, in your marriage or relationships, um, people you work with. All of these uh, are common things. Church, church leaders, you know, just very common key relationships. And um, a job is another one that gives us a sense of security. Um, you know, that whether we've got work or we haven't got work, whether we like the job we do, whether we like the people we work with, all these are big areas. Finances, um, whether we've got enough money to pay our bills, to survive, to exist, and hasn't the world been shaken in that people who absolutely trusted in banks and finances, um, who, who can honestly say, I totally trust the banking system now. You know, I think like the politicians, certain things have happened that have eroded our trust. And uh, we've all lived through and experienced that in different ways. Uh, good health, our health is something we often rely on to get us through. 
And so often, many of us come under attack in those areas, and for, for some, quite serious attack. And if that's you today, my prayer is that you will find strength in, in the, through what we share. And housing or home, you know, and we, we listen to the news, you know, if you're, if you're living in Syria or somewhere like that, or Iraq, and you look at all the refugees coming out, and the, uh, the, the, the crisis of people who have left their homes and are hoping to find homes elsewhere. I have no experience of what that is like, but uh, it, it is certainly a huge problem and that their home is no longer a secure place. So who or what? And all of those things are things we look to, uh, but I guess for all of us, we've been let down by them in one way or another. Who hasn't been let down by even the education system, something like that, and also in relationships where pain can often come. And I guess for all of us, all our lives we're learning uh, who or what is safe or trustworthy. I would say I'm still on that journey and I've made mistakes, all right? And I still do make mistakes about who or what is safe or trustworthy. And the ingredients that promote trust and safety are based on mutual self-esteem, thinking particularly in relationships, um, respect, dignity, and integrity that needs to work both ways. You know, if you're going to trust someone, you need to feel they value you in the way you value them, that, that kind of thing. There's certain basic ingredients that we probably don't think about a lot, but unconsciously it's what we use as our barometer you know, to, are these okay or not okay? You know, it's sometimes as basic as that. And the Bible says that trust is established very early on. In Psalm 22, verse 9, it said, you made me trust upon my mother's breast. And um, all the latest research in neuroscience would say that uh, when key relationships go wrong early on, then a sense of insecurity and anxiety can invade our lives very early on. So what the Bible was actually saying all those thousands of years ago is actually now being proven by science, that it is true that trust starts right from the day we're born, and some would say even earlier. So trust versus mistrust is the foundation stone in the development of our personality and well-being, whether I feel safe in the world or I don't. You know, those are really big questions whether my environment's safe or not. And sometimes it's not for all kinds of reasons, for all kinds of reasons. You know, so babies being born in war zones at the moment, it's not their fault, neither is it the fault of the parents. You know, who do you end up blaming in some of these situations? But will they be impacted? Of course they will. So why do we struggle? And we struggle because very often you're looking at three areas, disappointment in relationships, and the degree will depend on how much trust we put in someone. Now, no relationships are perfect, so we're all going to live with a degree of disappointment, aren't we? You know, whereby, um, you know, they're not perfect. They don't do things as I do or they don't think as I do. Well, that's life. But you learn how to get on and negotiate through it. But if you've really put your trust in someone and then they've betrayed you, just like that happened to Jesus. Jesus was betrayed terribly by Judas, we know, and by others. You know, when you've really done that, and I guess there are many of us here who have suffered betrayal, 
whether that's in a key relationship or in a work relationship, whatever, that betrayal can be one of the hardest things to recover from and accept and learn how to trust again. Because when trust has gone in a relationship, it is very, very hard to rebuild it. It can be rebuilt, it really can, but it would need both partners to work very hard and it would take time and it would involve commitment. So it can happen, but very often you get one partner is willing, one isn't, whatever the relationship is, whether it's friendship, whether it's um, in a marriage, whether it's a partnership, whatever. So these things can be, uh, be devastating. And an erosion of trust, where just gradually over time, you just become disillusioned because things aren't what you thought they were and people are not as safe and secure as you imagined they would be. And the big thing is that can we trust God? Because very often deep within there's a disappointment with God. That will frequently come up in a so-so session, frequently. Where almost, you know, I trusted God for this, I expected God to do that, and he let me down. And without realising, you withdraw from God, or you hold the fist up at God. You know, and those are all normal. We go in the Psalms, what I love about the Psalms, David is absolutely gut-level honest. If you are living at this moment in time with real disappointment where you feel God has really let you down and not come through for you, please read. It's not a psalm of trust, but it's a really good psalm. Psalm 44 is for you, and it's really good because he said, we've kept our side of the bargain. We've done everything. We've not gone off to foreign idols. We've not done that, and yet here we are. We're losing in the battle. You've not come through for us, and he's totally bewildered. But somehow, at the end, in all David's psalms, he comes back to putting his trust in God and the goodness of God. But he, he, he rants on at God. He, God allows you to rant at him. And he doesn't, you know, reject you, just like children do. He encourages us to be real and honest with him. But sometimes it's not as simple as that. Sometimes that disappointment with God, the shattered dreams... The unanswered prayer, maybe that's for healing for yourself or someone you love. And, uh, and that just hasn't happened. They're big things. They're hard. They're really hard. And maybe you need help to uh, come through and reconnect with God. But very often we hold offences at God. Okay? And we sometimes wonder, I'm not as near to God. And uh, what, what is it? And sometimes we, we have just felt offended by God. Or what we perceive is God. It's our perception that this isn't really who God is. God doesn't change. But if we're looking at God through our circumstances, very often we will conclude he's either a sadist or he didn't like us very much or that he's absent. And the Bible doesn't encourage that. The Bible actually says in this world you will have trouble. You will have problems. People will let you down. But God is still the same. He's outside your circumstances. And if you can do the shift of looking at your circumstances through the unchangeableness of God, that will change your life forever. Forever. You know, and there are Christians in the world today who are being slaughtered and martyred. There are terrible things happening to Christians. And you know, not many of them have ended really well, still trusting in a loving God. So it's possible 
The early church had that. And so it's about learning to see that God is bigger than our circumstances. And he, his nature, does not change. And then there's different types of trust. I got this from a book by a man called Pat Springle called Trusting. It's a really old book, but it's really good. And he said there are these different types of trust. One is blind trust, where we trust everyone, whether they're trustworthy or not. All right? We, we just trust anybody and believe them. And we've probably all done that at times. And through life's experiences, you mature and learn that's not a good way to be. <laughs> and then there's passive mistrust, where you don't trust anyone. You trust yourself, but you won't trust anybody else. And so you withdraw and you live with suspicion towards people. You avoid conflict and you play safe, but you miss out on rich, rewarding relationships. And the other is aggressive mistrust, where you still don't trust anyone, so you put yourself in control, all right? And you can control, dominate, intimidate others, or maybe you've been on the receiving end of that, and that's not nice, whereby as long as you're in charge and control, you feel safe, but you don't feel safe if others are. And uh, again, it's going to alienate you with other people. And I guess the, percept- uh, the best kind of trust is perceptive trust, which is wise, honest, strong, yet kind. In other words, you ask God to give you balance in who you can trust and who you can't. Okay, And I would say we're all on a learning curve with that, all of us. And uh, that's okay. You know, and we will make mistakes along the way. And then we have to say, well, are we 100% trustworthy all the time? Ask ourselves, you see. You know, we've got to look at ourselves too. And what, what is going on? Ask God to mature us and grow us in that process. And But God, actually asks us to blindly trust him. He doesn't say, you can trust me when things are going well and when they're not, just forget about me. He doesn't say that. He asks us to blindly trust him. And do we need to deal with our disappointments uh, with God? Are there people to forgive and lies to reject about God and about others? Because forgiveness, as Catherine shared, is the most healing thing. You know, they may never change, but it can change you. And then I'm just going to look briefly at the Psalms and some of the, um, yeah, and Mervyn said, the language of the Psalms, it's Hebrew poetry, I'll just skip through this. They're musical poems and not intended for doctrinal exposition, but they use metaphors. I love metaphors, I love metaphors, they're so powerful. And metaphors are word pictures, and it's where God reaches Um, our heart through our mind okay so we see a picture or a picture is drawn for us in the psalms and through it god touches our heart they're really powerful and um and the the vocabulary of the psalms is purposefully metaphorical and we're meant to look at the meaning um of the metaphor and what god is saying rather than on the literal temptation So we've got Psalm 91 here, and I thought we'd read it all out loud together. I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but perhaps you can join me in just reading this out loud. Uh, It's full of metaphor. So let's go. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High 
will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrows that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. So it says there that he is our refuge and our, our rampart and our shield, but also he will cover us with his feathers. And I'll explain that in a minute, which is unusual, isn't it? And you may think, well, we don't have deadly pestilences here, and we don't have arrows flowing, throwing at us. Have you ever had the poisonous arts of the darts of the enemy come your way through others or through situations? We've all experienced illness and flu, and we've experienced far worse. We are involved with Sierra Leone. They have had a plague that strikes at midday with Ebola, and it has affected Christians and non-Christians alike. You know, so you can't say it, but you've got to think, what does plague mean for me? What do those um, arrows mean for me? What is the pestilence that stalks in the darkness? Do you get nightmares? Do you get fears or frightened at night? Night terrors, those sort of things. All of that, you've got to say, Lord, what are you saying through it? So um, on your sheets, you can see lots of references to God in the Psalms. But we're just going to look at some of the pictures that God is painted as in the Psalms. And first is God as a rock. I love this. This is El Capitan in um, Yosemite Park in California, which we visited a few years ago. It's such a powerful rock. And of course, it's solid, immovable, unchangeable. You know, that's not going to go away. That's been there thousands, I would say millions of years. All right. And it's never changed. And people try climbing it year after year. And I think this last year, somebody made it to the top. It's really, really hard. But um, it's just a reminder of God's strength and power and faithfulness. God is a safe fortress. You can run there and be safe. He's a refuge. And you can have all the, fa- the wars going on around you, whatever they mean for you. But there is a safe place in God who will hide you. And I love this. God is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? God is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? That's Psalm 27. And when I became a Christian, those verses meant so much to me. Uh, They were powerful. And that in the darkest times, God is our light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And uh, that's still true, whatever the darkness is you may face. And then, um, I love this, he covers me with his feathers. I mean, some of you may think of an eagle's wing, if you like a more sort of masculine image, if you like. But there is that lovely nurturing mother images of God throughout the Bible and in the Psalms where he comforts and nurtures and protects. And that sense of being 
under his wing. And I always remember one day having um, a whole load of work I had to do, and I was sat uh, on my laptop, and I had lots of emails to reply to, and some of them were quite difficult. And I remember thinking, and I just thought, Holy Spirit is my helper. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, will you come and help me here? Help me to get all this done because I don't want to do it, but also with some of it, I don't know where to start. And I immediately got this image of me being inside a swan and with my laptop. I still have my laptop, but I was inside the swan and I was being carried along. And I just felt the Holy Spirit is, I'm right here, I'm helping you, and lean on me and let me take you through it. That's fantastic. And you know that image, just like Catherine, it never left me. And it was personal for me. And whenever I'm overwhelmed with emails, I always go back to it and ask the Lord to help me. And then lastly, um, the Good Shepherd, Psalm 23, which is the psalm of trust, that he will carry us, he will guide us, he'll help us find those green pastures to lie down in. And he will always, always be there for us. You know, God is faithful and true. It's like Jesus said, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. Life can, but he remains solid and trustworthy. And these pictures uh, just remind us of that. Now, just to answer the question... When God's word does not appear to work out. Now, we know that God has made us for relationships. We know that the human part of the brain, you're not going to get a lesson on neuroscience here, but that human part of that brain is entirely programmed for relationships. That's the thing that makes you different than a monkey. And it's not surprising, really, because the big relationship that God wants to have is with you. And so it's not only just with everybody else, and it's with you. And we're told to trust God anyway because of what he's done for us on the cross. That's the basis of what we do. But what happens, but we can break trust with God. I don't know about you, but I've had situations in my life where I felt God very clearly told me to do something. I've gone ahead in a, in a relationship with God. I've gone ahead and done that thing. And at the end of the day, it hasn't worked out as I expected. We'll, we'll be looking at that. So I could choose at that time to say to God, I trusted you. It didn't happen, so I'm going to break my relationship with you. And there are people who do that because it didn't happen. Other people hold offense against God and get angry with God. They don't break their trust with him completely, but their relationship changes with him because they get angry with him. You let me down. You didn't do it. They still maintain the relationship, but they, they um, hold an offense. Again, what happens when you hold an offense against somebody? You put up barriers in the relationship. So things don't quite flow as they used to flow. Your relationship isn't quite so good. 
I've heard other people say when things don't work out, well, I must have got it wrong. I've heard the wrong thing. And they beat themselves up against it. But again, what does that do? It breaks the relationship because you then say to yourself, well, I can't hear God anymore. I don't have a relationship with him. I must be no good at this stuff. What does that do? That puts a relationship barrier between you and God. But you've got to also understand that circumstances don't happen and don't work out because we're in a battle and we, and, and actually sometimes we lose the battle. But God's in the long game, not in the short game. And I'm going to give you some stories about where battles appear to be lost. But actually, in the end, it works out. And that is the Christian testimony. As I'm getting older, I'm 65 now. I can tell you, I've been through a number of battles and I've appeared to lose some. I, uh, but I know God is faithful. I know he's absolutely in the throne. I know that things are wrong. And what I would encourage you to do is if you've been in a, made a decision, you've trusted God or something you really believed in was going to happen and doesn't happen, you need to find out why it hasn't happened. Because if you don't resolve that issue, you go and put one of these um, offences against God or you break trust. So what I'm going to do, um, yeah, we have a father is in the long game, and I'm going to tell you three stories. The first one is about a Methodist minister I heard about 15 years ago. I was at a church, in a Methodist church. Actually, it was in Waltham Chase, Methodist church. He was called as a missionary, post-war, went to China. He was quite successful. He built quite a large church. He built quite a lot of um, a school there. He set up a Christian school, and he set up a clinic, and it was quite successful. A lot of people became Christian. And what happened in 1966 and 67? Yeah, the Red Guards came, Mao Zedong, Red Book stuff. And all he can remember, he said, was looking, they came along, burnt his church, burnt the school, burnt the clinic, killed some of the key leaders, and he was taken away and you know, they had to leave the, the country. And all he can remember is being marched away by the Red Guards to get on a ship to, to leave the country, looking back at his clinic, looking back at his church, looking back at his school in flames and thinking, was it all worth it? 20 years of my life I've spent building this up and it's gone up in flames. What did he do? He spent the next 20 odd years or 25 years just believing that God was going to destroy anything else he did. So he carried on as a Methodist minister, but he wasn't terribly effective. He ran a Methodist church and then eventually retired. He got to the age of 80. On his 80th birthday, his family said, we're going to take you to the place in China where you were a missionary. We're going to explore it because things were changed and the climate had changed a bit and the Red Guards obviously weren't around and, and things like that. So he went back to the town where he planted his church. And when he got there, 
he was absolutely amazed. There was a church of thousands there. It's a huge church. Three or four services every Sunday. The hospital there. The school was all there. All the things that were burnt down were there. And he said, it didn't matter to me that nobody knew who I was. He just, but God had rebuilt all those things on the foundations, he said. But he had lived, the point that I'm saying, he'd lived all those years believing that the seeds that he had sown had been totally destroyed. But the end game was God had rebuilt it. And you know the story about martyrdom, and we'll hear another story about martyrdom now, that where you lose your life for the kingdom of God, God, there's a, that's how you overcome Satan, and often you'll find big things happen, and revivals happen, and Christian things happen. The second story is a story that um, some of you will know about Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Um, I went to Bible college with their daughter. And uh, the story is, in, uh, they, they went out as missionaries to Ecuador in 1952, and, they, and five missionaries went there to evangelize a particular tribe in, in the sort of, uh, in the jungle actually, they were, and to, to reach them for Christ. And the method they used was they would try and make contact, they would leave them presents and the rest of it. And one day, and then they'd left presents and they kept going backwards and forwards. And the idea was that when God told them, they would stay with the presents and then they'd be able to evangelize them. Well, the day came in 1956 where they felt God, this long game here, wasn't it? Four years of sowing, trying to build relationship with this tribe. They went and they stayed, they flew in, we left the presents and there were all the stuff, gifts, and they stayed with them. And it was about four months later, they found the bodies floating down the river, they turned up. Five missionaries went there, believed God, heard the word of God, and what happened to them? They were killed. We all know, um, he, the, this is a famous verse that, he, he, that uh, Jim used to say before he died. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So in one sense, when they went on the mission field, they knew that they could lose their lives over it, and there are plenty of missionaries who have. But there were five widows. Five missionaries died, five widows. Went back home. And one of them, that's um, Elizabeth Elliot's wife, uh, decided that God was not, you know, that, that this was not right. That God was on the case. And she and some others went back. They actually managed to meet the tribe and as a result of it it's an amazing story uh, the whole lot got converted put it that way and the point of this story is Valerie which was their daughter who had been uh, was a young girl at the time was only a, I think she was about four years old when she lost her dad they hadn't been uh, been, been long doing it at Bible school was going back um, she was in the Bible college with us to be baptized by the guy who'd killed her dad, who is now the leader of the church. God's involved with the long game. So sometimes what appears to be a disaster and doesn't quite work out 
at the end, has a victory. The other four widows didn't go back. What did they feel? Well, they were probably pleased at the end that the, the, you know, the martyrdom went. But it's, a, it's an interesting issue. It's about your attitude to God in all this. And the last story is a biblical one from a book of Lazarus. I don't know where you've noticed in the book of Lazarus. This, sorry? The story. Oh, sorry, yeah, this, about Lazarus in, in, in John, in the book of John. Sorry, yeah, book of Lazarus. <laughs> okay. Um, Martha and Mary, their brother was ill, sent word, Jesus, come quick. It says, Lazarus was someone he loved. So what did Jesus do? In John 11, verse 6, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, where he was, he was a, uh, He stayed where he was two more days. Now, if you were um, Martha and Mary, they were about a day and a half's journey from uh, from where Jesus was to that. So they'd obviously got there. And he was waiting two and a half days. When Jesus eventually turned up, we all know what had happened. Lazarus had died. Martha and Mary, in their heart, cried out, Lord, If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. You imagine the scene, all that grief, all the loss, all the feeling, the heartache, they could have got angry. Now we know what happened in the story because we've read the book. (laughs) And of course he raised him from the dead. But it's a very interesting lesson to learn. That God doesn't always jump when you want him to jump. He's in the long game. The reason for this is we know that after three days, they, the Jews believed that um, there was no way back, if you like, that you, you, you've left. And so the fact it was four days after he died, that it was a very important thing for the Jews, that Jesus raised him back from the dead. It was a very powerful issue there. So we always have to see that despite the disasters, you've got to hear God on it. You cannot rest and just leave it and get angry with God. Well, you can get angry with God because the psalmist does rant at God and say, why has that happened and what has happened and all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, you have to reiterate and put your declaration and trust back into God. And you stay with the long game. Yeah, um, we're going to listen to a song now from Bethel. Um, and it's called It Is Well With My Soul and some of you may recognise some of the old hymn that's called that in it but it's uh, a beautiful song and I'd invite you to just listen and let God minister to you through it and um, if you want to sing that's fine if you just want to sit quietly that's fine and it says uh, halfway through I think it says so let go my soul and trust in him. The waves and winds still know his name. In other words, he's still in control. May not feel like it, but he is. And we need to let go. And you may be thinking, I can't. And maybe what God has shown you today is that there is a block there between you and God. There's too much hurt, too much pain, too much disappointment. And if that's the case, that's okay. God knows that. And we'd love to pray with you. And maybe for some of you, you feel 
I just want to reconnect with God again. I've lost him. I've let go of his hand. I want to trust him again. And if that's you, we'd love to pray. I felt the Lord told me that there were three kinds of people here today. And it was about heart. And one was people with hearts who had been broken. And they hadn't fully healed. The other was people whose hearts had got disillusioned and were confused. And there were others who had hardened their hearts. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, he may be knocking on the door of your heart to say, open up and get to know me. And I'm here and he's safe, he's good. And you've heard some lovely testimonies of what he's really like. So don't harden your heart. Let him soften your heart. So listen and um, let God speak to you. And then please do come forward for prayer. We'd love to pray with you. If you've got children, you need to collect them in two minutes. But uh, other than that, please feel free to just respond as God leads you uh, as we listen to this music.
against God. Some people feel there is a barrier between them and God because of something that's happened. Your opportunity to come forward for prayer. And I'm just going to pray generally. Father, I am sorry and I repent of in any way that I've held an offense against you. Any way that I put a barrier because I felt you haven't come through for me. For any way where I felt disappointed in something that's not worked out. Lord, I ask your forgiveness. And Father, I thank you that you want to clean up our relationship to put it back so we can come together. In Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want prayer, you'd like to come forward. Someone will come and pray with you about your specific issue.